Good morning, everybody. My name is Sarah, and I am so excited to be spending some time with you this morning. We're going to be looking at some really potent truths about us and God and how it can actually change our entire lives. I don't know if you've ever played the game before, two truths and a lie, but essentially the concept behind it is somebody tells you three facts about themselves um, and you've got to guess which one is untrue, which one is the lie. And we're going to be looking at that from God's perspective today. We're not going to guess which ones are true and which ones are lie, but we're going to look at two truths about who God is and who we are, and then a lie that we often believe that I think is an, a huge obstacle in terms of how we think we can come to God, if God is for us, that kind of thing. And we're going to unpack them today. And we're going to do that through the lens of Psalm 130. Now, this is an absolutely beautiful piece of writing. It's rich with fundamental truths that the Christian faith is built on. And I personally think that whether you are a follower of God or don't get really what the big deal about him is, I think it's a great psalm to look at. It's really cool because we get to unpack who God is and what he requires of us and why Christians would devote their, their lives to him. And what we see here is that it's coming from an individual like the Psalms do. And it's a personal cry that we get to look into here. So it's not a prescriptive piece of writing that kind of just tells us what to do. Not that that's invalid in any way, but it's, it's really special because what we see here is um, somebody who follows God and understands who God is. And then we see how he responds to him. Um, and it's just so cool to see. So let's read 130, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Beautiful. Now, the first truth that we're going to look at today is that everyone and everything is broken, including you. Now, that might sound a little bit offensive to you, um, depending on what, uh, what your beliefs are, but we're going to unpack it today because it's nevertheless true. And we're going to look at that at verses 1 to 2 of the psalm. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist is absolutely desperate. And what's he desperate for? Well, he's desperate for mercy. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. In Hebrew, out of the deep specifically means to being caught in deep, dangerous waters. And I don't know how everybody feels about the ocean, but the thought of being stranded thousands of kilometers away from the shore with no boat or life raft, 
no way to call for help. That terrifies me to the core. And what the psalmist is describing here is is not a situation, an earthly hardship or struggle that he's going through. What the psalmist is describing here, what he needs help from, he's describing sin. He's saying, I'm drowning. I'm surrounded by it. Lord, help me. This imagery is really helpful for me in in understanding sin because like snorkeling terrifies me in like a crystal pool that's really shallow. So (laughs) it's it's very relatable in that sense. But, But what the psalmist is describing is sin of being absolutely hopeless in the depths. That's what he's talking about here. And if you're not a follower of God, then at this point you're probably saying, okay, Sarah, stop being so dramatic. I'm not drowning. You can just calm yourself. But I just would love to ask for your kindness um, as we look at verse 3. And if you can just bear with me. And it says, If you, Lord, kept record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And this reads much like a courtroom, right? If, if you've got somebody standing on trial um, and there's a case against them, a record of their crimes, and then you have a justice system, and uh, which is the law which will determine the punishment will determine the punishment for the record the case against them and then you have a judge who's the enforcer of that law and what they will do the job of the judge is to issue a punishment that is appropriate by law for the crimes committed now if we bring this back into the context of the psalm what we see is um the psalm is saying, if anyone, not just Christians, if anyone had to stand on trial and give an account of their lives, not one would be found innocent. And the judge, the enforcer of true justice, would have to issue the appropriate punishment. Now, according to Romans 6 verse 23, the punishment of sin, the wages of sin, are death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the punishment that would have to be issued in that courtroom scene is the death penalty, right? That's what would be necessary to pay. And this is where it gets real, right? Because if this is true, then Christianity can't just be something that we look at and go, well, oh, well, it's really nice for some people to be religious. Um, And if that brings you peace and comfort, then like, I'm so chilled with that. I'm not going to kind of fight that in any way. You do you and I'll do me. I'm just not that type of person. It's not something I need. That that argument can't stand because what he's saying here is if anyone, if anyone at the end of their life has to give an account, not one would be found innocent because of sin and what is punishable for sin is death. And if you follow God, we kind of get this to some extent, right? Because we know we're sinners, but we don't get it fully. We don't understand the extent of our sin. I don't think we ever will. But maybe you're not a Christian, Maybe the idea of sin is completely offensive to you when you look at the life you've lived, the people you've helped, the type of citizen you are, your generosity and your hospitality. Maybe you're saying, listen, Sarah, I know I've made mistakes. I may even have some regrets. I know I'm not perfect. I'm not delusional. 
But to tell me that 80% of my entire life that I've spent doing good, being generous, non-judgmental, optimistic, you can't say that that's not good enough. You can't say that I'm not a good person. You can't say that I'm drowning, that I'm hopeless and I'm broken. But I would love for you to consider asking why. Consider asking some questions about things we believe fundamentally as humans. Why do we have a standard for good and bad? Why do we want to see horrific acts punished? Why do we want to see justice, inequality for all people? Why do we want to see fair treatment? Why do we think that hatred is a bad thing? Where does that come from? It comes from somewhere. There's an ultimate bar for justice where we know there is a right and a wrong and it's absolute. It's why we have values and, and morals. There's an ultimate standard, a true bar for justice. And that bar comes from God, the ultimate judge. Because the thing is, if everyone can own their own truth, if everyone can own their own what's right and what's wrong, then so can the rapist, so can the murderer. All, all these horrific acts we see, someone can own the truth of their own good and their own bad, and it would just be horrendous, which it is, right? If we think about that concept, and we can test this from two perspectives. So the one is when we look out at the world. I think anybody looking at this world today would not say everything is as it should be. We're doing a great job. There's nothing that I would change. Everything's going well, right? We can't like switch on the news and, and give that kind of argument. I don't think anyone in the world would agree with something like that. We look at the fact that people are literally profiting from sexual slavery, human trafficking, selling women and girls into, uh, into sexual slavery. We look at the corruption we see. We look at the fact that people die from starvation. We look at wild distributions of wealth, we, just corruption everywhere. It's just not as it should be. There's horrific things happening. And when we look at the world, we're like, okay, things are not going well. Things are not as they should be, right? And then the second perspective is when we look into ourselves. And as much as we try and exclude ourselves from the world's problems, we are part of the world. We're part of those problems. And deep down, deep down, if we honestly question ourselves, we know there is something wrong with us. And we are trying to prove that that is not the case. Let me be clear here. I think we all do this, whether you're a Christian or not. You are trying to prove that you are not as bad as you know you are deep down. Think about it. Why do you try so hard? Why do you try and change the way you look? Why am I wearing makeup right now? Why do I do that? Why do you work so hard? Why do you want to do so well? Why do you care so much about what people think of you? Why do you dream of being someone the world admires? Why do you do good? Why? Because you're trying to fix yourself. Who you are is not good enough. And you think that once you achieve that success or you can get to that goal weight or you can climb to the top of the ladder in your career, if you can just reach a state of contentment and wellness that the feeling of needing to be better or different will go away, but it won't. 
because the wrongs that you are trying to right in yourself cannot be fixed by you. You will never find contentment through yourself. We can track this right back to the first people God created, Adam and Eve. They were completely content in the Garden of Eden until they sinned. And immediately they realized that they were naked. And they were ashamed. What they did was they covered themselves up with fig leaves. Um, Tim Keller, uh, an amazing writer and uh, Presbyterian pastor um, in, in the Christian church and um, uh, just, just an amazing theologian of our time, he, he looks at this uh, kind of scenario and how they covered themselves up with fig leaves. They knew immediately they were ashamed and he says, what's your fig leaf? What is it? What's your fig leaf? Success? Seeking approval? Generosity? Positivity, volunteering, being a good friend, a good parent, a good family member. What are you unknowingly trying to use to prove that you're better than who you think you are? What's the drive behind what you're doing? And before we go on, it's important to remember that what we're trying to do here when we uncover sin is not to make you feel guilty and for you to wallow in self-pity saying, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, the world's a terrible place, we all deserve to die. That's not what we're getting at here. But it's really important that we have a grasp on reality, the reality about ourselves, the truth about who we are as broken people. And something that you would have heard often, um, it's kind of just spread across the world, but it's this phrase, the truth will set you free. Now, the thing is, that is actually a verse in the Bible, and it's in John 8, verse 31 to 32. It says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's what we're doing here. When we kind un of uncover our sin, the truth about ourselves, we can find freedom in God because we have a grasp on reality. So remember, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to see that we're broken and cover our sin so that we can find freedom, peace in Jesus. So truth one is that everything is broken, including you. Now let's look at truth two. The second truth, which is a much more positive and exciting, is the fact that God fixes everything. Now we're going to look at verse 4 to see that, which says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So this truth, truth number two, God fixes everything. It is the best possible news we could ever get in our entire lives. Now, it's important to remember that this text where we read, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We get to read um, now post New Testament, but this is an Old Testament scripture. So we live in a time when the forgiveness that the psalmist is talking about has now been fulfilled. So in a sense, if we go back to the courtroom in verse 3, we're living in a time where the judge has already declared the sentence of our punishment, which is death. And the clincher is, it wasn't paid by us. All that stuff that was broken and that needed fixing and all the sin that we were supposed to be punished with death with, someone was, it just wasn't us. 
It was paid by God himself. And when Jesus died to take on that punishment for our sins, he changed the entire case that is presented in that courtroom. We read in 1 John 2 verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But he knows we will because he knows we're broken. And then he says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, an advocate, the definition is a person who puts a case on someone else's behalf. So in modern day terms, we would call that a lawyer, someone who brings a case forward to represent another. And Tim Keller, who we spoke about a little bit earlier, gives an absolutely beautiful analogy of what happens here when Jesus Christ died for us and became our advocate. Um, And for me as a Christian, I read this about three months ago, and it was the most freeing thing to know that I could come before God with boldness, knowing that it has nothing to do with me trying to fix everything, but that God does it. So we're going to read that that passage together. It's in his book called Encounters with Jesus, and it's a chapter called The Two Advocates. When I first heard the idea of Jesus Christ representing me before the Father, It made me think of him going before the throne like this. Good morning, Father. I represent Tim Keller, and my client, I admit it, is having a very bad week. He's broken three or four promises he made to you. He has broken several of your laws that he knows and acknowledges. He has sinned a lot this week. He deserves to be punished. But cut him a break, please, Father. For my sake, just just cut him a break. I really ask that you give him another chance. And that's how I imagined him speaking. And I also imagined the father saying in reply, Well, all right, okay, okay, for you, Jesus, I'll give him one more chance. Now, the trouble with that imagery scenario is that Jesus does not have a case. He is simply pleading for another chance. And I remember thinking, I wonder how long even Jesus can keep that sort of thing up. I wondered when the father would finally say, that does it. I've had it. It's done. But my imagination was ill-formed. It's not sufficient for a lawyer to just resort to tugging on the heartstrings of the jury or the judge or to try to delay the verdict or to appeal to technicalities. The lawyer doesn't need spin or emotional manipulation. He needs a real case. And that is exactly what Jesus has. What is his case? John goes on to tell us in 1 John 2 verse 2. First, he says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When Jesus goes before the Father, he is not actually asking for mercy for us. Of course, it was infinitely merciful of God to send Christ to die for us. But that mercy has now been granted. So Jesus does not need to beg for it. 1 John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice it does not say that if Christians confess their sins, God forgives because he mercifully gives them another chance. No, it says he forgives because he is faithful and just. To not forgive us would be unjust. But how could that be? 
the best way for you to get an acquittal for your legal client, this is Jesus as the lawyer, is not to hope you can get some sympathy from the court. The best way to show that your client must be acquitted under the law. You must be able to say with integrity and conviction, this is the law and the law demands my client's acquittal. You want to make a case that is not based on how the court feels at the time, but is open and shut according to the law. And Jesus has one. Jesus can say, in effect, Father, my people have sinned and the law demands that the wages of sin be death. But I have paid for those sins. See, here is my blood, the token of my death. On the cross, I have paid the penalty for these sins. Now, if anyone were to exact two payments for the same sin, it would be unjust. And so I'm not asking for mercy for them. I'm asking for justice. That, if Jesus' claims are true, is an infallible case. What freedom to know that we can come before God with that kind of boldness when we mess up over and over again. That's how we can come before him with boldness to know that it's got nothing to do with what we've done, but the price has already been paid by our Lord and Savior if we've accepted him as that. That's what's on offer. Aren't you tired of fearing death? Aren't you tired of holding on to things and trying to find security and things that can disappear in the click of a finger, like family or money or friends, all these things that can literally disappear in an instant? Aren't you just tired of trying to fix yourself, of trying to be a better person, getting yourself out of anxiousness or a depressive state? Man, Jesus is the most unfathomable gift of grace on offer for you and me. He's the one who knit together the fiber of your being, the one who knows the ugliest parts of you. And he says, come. He says, let me take the burdens that you are trying to carry yourself, trying to fix over and over again. And he says, take, he'll take them from us. Matthew 11 verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To follow Jesus is to be fully known. The worst and ugliest parts of yourself, to be fully known and fully accepted and fully loved out of his gracious love he has offered to us a freedom beyond comprehension so we're going to look at a clip right now that also looks at that courtroom imagery of just looking at justice and what we've done and what god's done to give us that freedom that's on offer for everyone um, and it's a spoken word by the very very talented gloria umana and we're going to just take a look at that now there I was, standing shamefully in a courtroom, surrounded by demons on my left and angels on my right, Satan as the persecutor holding millions of records about my life, and God sitting on a throne with a mighty gavel in his hand. I had no lawyer, placed on trial for things such as lying, stealing, and fornication, for this was the beginning of my tribulation, for there was no reason to plead an innocent statement. For all the evidence was sitting right there with Satan 
The demons smiled as tears rolled down the judge's eyes, for they clearly knew that now was the hour of my demise. But wait, in came a light shining so bright that the demon smiling suddenly jumped with fright, and the man that walked in that night was none other than Jesus Christ. Darkness departed to give way, and glory was all the angels could say. As the man that walked in that night pulled out a lighter and immediately set Satan's records against me on fire. He took the sentence file and erased my name, looked at me in the eyes and said, Daughter, I'll take the blame. Handcuffs were placed on this man and he was thrown to the ground. The entire courtroom gasped at the horrendous sound and the sudden seized the beat of his heart. The man that walked in glowing had now become dark. I did this to him. My lying, my stealing, my cheating. And he took the pain and spent three days in the hell that I was to go to for eternity. I left the courtroom that day and there was nothing I could say. I was found innocent for Christ handled the debt that I was to pay. This type of love is more than you could give to a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife. This man died for me. I owe him my life. And even though my life is not at all worth it, how could you ever trade preference for perfect? See, I gave my life to Christ and suddenly picked up a mop. The lying, cursing, cheating, all that had to stop because my life had been bought. And it'd be a shame to sit there and do nothing but let it rot. I'm not perfect, and the will to sin hasn't completely diminished from my life. But I believe Jesus' words when he died for me on that cross. It is finished. So we've now looked at the two truths, right? So truth one being that everyone is broken, including you and I. And truth two being that God fixes everything. Through his grace, he makes a way for us to come back to him, which is true freedom and peace. And now we're going to look at the lie. And the lie is that we have to meet God halfway. That yes, we are broken. Yes, he fixes everything. But you've just got to clean yourself up a little bit before you come to him. Get that sin under control and kind of sort this part out out of your life um, first. But guys, these checkboxes that we've created to work on ourselves before we come toward God are lies. And to prove this, we just have to look at the Bible. What does God require of us to come before him? Psalm 60, you have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. Psalm 79, how long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Guys, these are people who loved God and whom God loved. And this is how they cry out to him, like that. Two thirds of the Psalms are laments. And lament is a type of Psalm which is a cry to God out of desperation or frustration or anger or confusion. Two thirds of the Psalms, that's the posture. I think we have a major false perception that having doubts or struggles with sin or fears or being angry, we think that somehow that discredits the character of God as if our emotions and our beliefs cannot coexist. But guys, trusting the character of God and being authentic about your struggles are not mutually exclusive. Look at the psalmist here, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. We are going to miss a beautiful element of what God has to offer us if we try and walk through life with a happy facade. Christians, we need to challenge the culture we're creating if when people walk through the church doors, they think they need to leave their doubts and their questions and their sin at the door. 
The posture that we taught to come before God with is one of authenticity, not figure all your stuff out first and then maybe you can speak to him. It is not a fake it till you make it kind of gospel. Whether you've never stepped foot in a church building before or you go every single Sunday, God has never, ever required of us to fake it. I hope that I'm getting across here that following Jesus has nothing to do with the grandeur or the multitude of your sins. That it's got nothing to do with paying your debts back to God through a moral life. Let's look at verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. Now the definition of redemption is the action of gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Now the possession gained was you and I and the payment that was made in exchange for that was the death of Jesus Christ. Why on earth would we try and meet him halfway for something he has already accomplished fully? Full redemption. We see in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you or so that you may be feared. The order of that is so clear. We're not working back for God's forgiveness. We do that out of response for what he's done. We live in response to the things that he's already finished. That's what we call to here. Come as you are. It's got nothing to do with anything you could possibly offer. It's about knowing that you will mess up over and over and over again and nothing you do will ever be good enough. It's about coming to God saying, won't you take from me, Lord, what only you can take? Won't you fix what only you can fix? Won't you show me what it means to be devoted to the God of the universe who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? He has an offer for you which is free, and it's unfailing love, it's freedom, it's peace. There is no more satisfying life to live than the one that you were ultimately designed for. And if you're a Christian at this point, won't you just sit for a while and think about the ways that you're trying to meet God halfway? And won't you come before him with boldness saying, Lord, won't you forgive me for me trying to take the burden that you've already taken? And if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian and you're saying, I want that. I want a life where I'm no longer trying to hold on to the things of this world that can disappear like this. I want a life where I don't have to try and strive to fix myself all the time. I want true freedom. I want true peace. I want this gift that God has offered me freely then once you pray this prayer with me and know that it's got nothing to do with fancy words, it's literally about saying, here I am, Lord. Won't you take what only you can take? Jesus, I'm tired of trying to fix myself. I know I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And I believe you paid my debts with your life and then rose again so that I could be in your presence forever. Lord, I ask that you forgive me and accept me. I want to accept your free offer of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, I want to say congratulations. It's the best decision that you could ever make. And if you've got a a Christian friend, um, then won't you go tell them? Won't you go tell them and be like, well, I don't know what to do next. What, like, how do we go from here? And if you don't have someone you feel comfortable doing that with, um, won't you contact us? 
We would love to hear from you. We will welcome any questions you have. And um, essentially, it's literally just to love you and, and to, yeah, just support you and, and be there for you in any way. I hope that you have a fantastic Sunday further. It has been an honor speaking to you today.